0: The second step on the transcendental dependent arising is faith or confidence. The word sadha in Pali can mean either way, faith or confidence. And when we have actually Realize dukkha as being inherent in worldly existence comes the time when we look for something that may take us out of dukkha, that is not of a worldly nature. And then, when we hear a true teaching faith or confidence may arise. This confidence that arises is a matter of the heart and not a matter of the mind. Because at the time of starting to practice, we cannot possibly have our own experience of what is being taught. So we cannot with our mind say that this is true, but it can be a feeling in the heart that there is truth in that which we hear or read. And confidence of faith has also love in it. We can only have confidence in something we love. If there is no love, then we can't trust. So the trust which arises in us has to be based on love. People who have a lot of doubts find it very difficult to give themselves completely to anything or anyone. They always want to hold themselves back a bit. They want to keep a part of themselves to themselves. They don't want to give themselves wholeheartedly. If we do that, then our spiritual progress is very much impaired. There is no closer relationship than our own spiritual path. It is about as close a relationship as one can possibly imagine. So if we have a relationship with someone else, let's say in a marriage, and... We don't give ourselves to it wholeheartedly, but have constant doubts whether this is the right thing, the right person, the right situation. The marriage will will have no success at all. And yet, when one first gets married, one doesn't know what's going to happen. It's the same with the spiritual path when one first enters it, one doesn't know what's going to happen. One doesn't even understand quite a lot of the teaching. One hasn't got any reference points because one hasn't looked inside of oneself far enough to find the reference point. And yet, unless we give ourselves to it wholeheartedly, It cannot possibly be a success. And because very few people are able to do that, that's why very few people have real success with their spiritual practice. It is a matter of giving up one's own viewpoints, of letting go of all the stuff that one has read and heard, and really, following that what the Buddha taught. It sounds so simple and most people find it extremely difficult. Extremely difficult because their own viewpoints are in the way. Something they have read and heard somewhere else and from which they have deduced certain things, made up their own ideas about it And that is then a hindrance, an obstacle. We also forget that heart and mind have to work together. If we only understand something but don't love it, it will not have a completeness for us. There's no fulfillment in it. If we love something, but don't understand it, it's the same thing. Again, if we have a relationship with another person, any sort of relationship, whatever it may be, and we love the person, but don't understand that person, it's a very poor relationship. (coughs) Or if we understand the person, but don't love that person, it's an equally poor relationship. How much more Is it so, on our spiritual path? We have to understand what's going on and we have to love it. In the beginning, our understanding will only be partial. So our love has to be even greater. Faith and confidence are based on the opening of the heart, of letting go of one's own viewpoints, Letting go of one's own preconceived notions of what the teaching should be, the teacher should be, of what one expects out of it, expectations have to go, and just letting oneself be led, like a child that goes with the mother across a busy street, holding the hand of the mother, having confidence that the mother will know best. If we are able to give ourselves in that way, there is a feeling of happiness about it. The Buddha compared faith to a blind giant who meets up with a very sharp-eyed cripple called Wisdom. And the blind giant called Faith says to the sharp-eyed cripple called Wisdom, I am very strong, but I can't see. You are very weak, but you have sharp eyes. Come and ride on my shoulders. Together we'll go far. So the Buddha never Supported blind faith. But a balance between heart and mind. Wisdom, the mind. Faith, the heart. The two together will go very far. We have the saying that blind faith can move mountains. But unfortunately... Being blind doesn't know which mountain to move. And that's where we need wisdom. And that means that we have to understand the teaching. Even if at the beginning it seems difficult or completely foreign, we have to make the inquiry wholeheartedly. If we give ourselves to anything, whether it's planting a garden or building a house, it has to be done wholeheartedly. And that wholehearted endeavor, that promises success. Everything else is dabbling in a new hobby. And hobbies are so manifold it doesn't pay to dabble in a new one. But we will only do that if we have already realized that there's no way out of dukkha in the world. If we are still looking for that very pleasant loophole where we can find happiness in the world, then our commitment to the spiritual practice will not be complete because spiritual practice touches upon the raw edges in oneself and it goes deep to the point where in the end we won't recognize ourselves again. It is almost like turning oneself inside out that which we like to hide from ourselves that what we like to hide from others that has to be turned outside only then can it be healed and because this is difficult and because this is um, also painful at times our commitment has to be so total from the understanding of Dukkha If we think the world's got it, only we haven't found it yet, we're not going to get into such a situation where we commit ourselves completely to such a difficult task. And we're going to keep on looking in the world for that which we haven't found yet. The world is so full of manifold distractions, manifold opportunities. It's so full of temptations and seemingly beautiful things that there is not enough time even in one lifetime to explore it all. We can keep on exploring this and that. There has to be a total conviction in oneself. And that conviction comes not only when we are convinced of the dukkha, but also when we can hear truth. That the truth is really truth, and we can hear that when our mind is tuned to it. As the Buddha said, when we have little dust in our eyes then we hear the truth, and we know it to be truth. And that is when this commitment, this wholeheartedness arises. This wholeheartedness in oneself makes it it also possible that one feels oneself of one piece. It doesn't mean that we can no longer fulfill our daily obligations, we can fulfill them much better because they are just a side issue. They are not the main item. The main item is our own spiritual growth. The main item is the path that we want to follow. And therefore, our daily activities while they still take up time and energy and responsibility no longer seem to impinge upon us in the same manner they used to. They used to be the only thing that was important. They had to come out correctly. Otherwise we would feel that we are lacking in ability. Now we can see their changing nature and their repetitive nature. Our daily activities that are necessary to keep alive and to keep everything going are so repetitive that we are able to see that they are just like a merry-go-round that keeps going around and around. And it no longer becomes the important aspect of our lives. Being able to do it then means that we can do it easier because we're not so concerned about being right or being correct or being perfect because we know there's something else. And that something else is the one thing that matters then to us. It matters in such, in all the ways that it means growth in ourselves. It means that we are watching over that growth like we would watch over a very fragile plant in a garden. We would watch that and nurture it. We would water it, protect it from wind. We would um, manure it, we would look after it. This is what we would do with our own spiritual growth because it's a fragile plant. It's fragile as long as we haven't become one of the noble ones. Then of course, we are secure. Until then, there's always danger. There's always the danger of making bad karma. There's always the danger of not watching over oneself sufficiently so that our growth does not take place we can become a quite um, satisfied with ourselves because we are sitting in meditation, we are doing certain things which are supposed to help us on the path. That satisfaction with ourselves is not the same as contentment. Contentment is necessary. Self satisfaction is detrimental. To be content means that we are sure we're in the right place at the right time for our own growth. But to be self satisfied means that we aren't growing. So all this as an important aspect of our commitment to the practice makes us of one whole. Being not divided into putting our attention on worldly things, searching for worldly satisfaction, but one-pointed, one-directional. Confidence, faith is an aspect of the spiritual path which is indispensable. It means having faith in the three jewels, Buddha, Dhamma, Sangha. And out of the three, the Dhamma is the most important. There's a story, the time of the Buddha, of a monk who was so infatuated with the Buddha that he followed him around like a little puppy dog. Wherever the Buddha went, there this monk went. And then one day the monk became ill and had to go to bed. And as he was lying ill in bed, he started crying. And the other monks came to see him and said, why are you crying? You're not that ill, what's the matter? And he said, no, I'm crying because now being ill, I can't see the Buddha. And the other monk said, well, that's all right. We'll tell him, he'll come and visit you. So they did and he came and he visited this monk. And the monk became very happy. And the Buddha said to him, whoever sees me, sees the Dhamma, whoever sees the Dhamma sees me, not to be attached to the person, but only to the Dhamma. Whoever sees a Buddha sees the enlightenment because of the Dhamma. Whoever can see Dhamma inside sees Buddha because Buddha means enlightenment. So the only thing that is of the greatest worth is seeing the Dhamma in oneself. And that confidence that can arise is in that Dhamma, in that teaching. It is a jewel that we can have that is worth more than any precious thing in the whole world. Because this will make it possible for us to surpass and transcend all problems, surpass and transcend all difficulties. It's not that the difficulties disappear. We transcend them because we see the truth. Faith and confidence as an indispensable part of practice, also mean reverence and gratitude. These are qualities which we can foster in ourselves, and they are not so common, especially in the West. Reverence is something which we haven't really been taught because it seems as if we had lost that which we could revere. We can be grateful that we have found something again which we can revere, the greatest jewel that exists the law of nature, the law that tells us the absolute reality. Reverence for that shows itself in our attitudes, in our attitude to life around us. Because there's nothing in the whole of existence that does not proclaim the Dhamma. The Dhamma is anicca dukkha impermanence, unsatisfactoriness, and corelessness. There is nothing in the whole of existence, wherever you look, outside or inside, that does not proclaim that Dhamma. The reverence for that Dhamma will make it possible for us to have reverence for life. Reverence for all that exists because there's nothing that we can look at that doesn't have those characteristics and therefore suffers. Our reverence for the Dhamma will make it will show in our attitude towards all, particularly people, towards our practice. It will show that we have reverence when our practice is something that we have love and respect for. We have in the Zen tradition, a very nice uh, habit or a very nice um, custom where the people greet the cushion when they, before they sit down. Reverence for the cushion they're going to sit on. And also, they greet the person that's sitting opposite. It is a custom in that tradition. But it is a custom of reverence. The more we can imbue ourselves with that and have with it the confidence the more we will feel gentle and accepting. Reverence is something that shows that there's something greater than what we are. There's something greater than our own opinions. There's something much greater than what we have actually uh, manifested in ourselves, but which we are striving for towards. Reverence is a commitment to faith. And gratitude is one of the very fine qualities which we can also cultivate in ourselves. Gratitude to the teaching, the practice, the place, the other practitioners, or everyone who is here. Gratitude to one's own good karma, which gives contentment. To be grateful for the good karma one has, that one is able to do this thing, is also part of confidence and faith. All these qualities help us to empty ourselves of personal pride, to empty ourselves of some of our personality belief because there's something else we can see, something other than ourselves. The faith which is inspired because of the truth that we hear needs a firm foundation It needs a firm foundation of inquiry and the counterpart of love. But it should never be blind. It should always be based on the understanding that here is something I can actually do. The Buddha said, the whole of the universe, O monks, lies in this fathom long body and mind. One fathom long, an old-fashioned measurement, which today we would say five foot ten or something like that. The whole of the universe lies in here, in this body and mind. And this is where we can find every single answer We have them all within. We just haven't got in touch with them yet. This possibility of finding it within means that we need faith in ourselves. Unless we have faith in ourselves that we can actually do this practice and succeed, To the very end, we will always waver. Complete and utter faith means that we are sure. We are sure although we haven't experienced it yet. It is an inner agreement, it's an inner acceptance and a total turning towards This which will bring relief, release, freedom, liberation. If the whole of the universe lies in this body and mind, this is also important, to have faith in ourselves. Faith in ourselves means love for ourselves. If we can't love ourselves, we can't have faith in ourselves. It all comes back down always to the same aspect of practice. Loving the practice, loving ourselves, not indulging. Indulging is not love, indulging is hate. But the love which means a commitment and a feeling of total oneness, with oneself and the practice. Not being split. That sometimes we practice when we sit here and other times we don't. That doesn't help us. When there is faith and confidence, it's total. The third step on this path is joy, but I'll talk about that tomorrow. Too much at one time can't be retained <coughs> in the mind. If you have some questions, you can ask them now.
1: No, for example, uh, all truths have got just positions: the way Dukkha and Sukkha they are the two sides of the same picture. Similarly, we say that love ourselves however impermanent, however changing, however transitory everything is, but still you love it and though you know it's impermanent, everything is impermanent, Mm -hmm. all relationship, everything, but knowing its futility, you still love it.
0: Yes, you that, have to love it.
1: That's a paradox. Hmm? That's the contradiction. All great truths sound like contradictions. Hmm?
0: It's only a contradiction because there are two levels of understanding. The level of absolute truth is a level where there isn't anything. No, no birth, no death, nothing. It's all back to the ground of the original matrix. There's nothing there. But on the level of relative truth, we've got to work with our emotions and we've got to work with our difficulties. And on this level where we are talking and speaking Because on the other level, we wouldn't be talking to each other. There's nobody there to talk to. So on this level, love is the important emotion. And this is why, quite rightly, it sometimes sounds like a paradox, because we have those two levels of understanding. But we can only work on the relative level. Once we have got to the absolute level, we don't have anything to say. Anonymous.
1: Yeah. Uh, Kema means... Uh, Kema? Kema means forgiveness, pardon?
0: No. It means security.
1: Kema.
0: It's security. And it's a synonym for Nibbana.
1: Hmm?
0: It's a synonym for Nibbana. Yes. There are many words which are uh, synonyms for Nibbana. Mm-hmm. And Kema is one of them. Mm-hmm.
1: And uh, Aya means... Uh,
0: It means in Pali, venerable lady.
2: starting to accumulate questions
0: (laughs) that's good (laughs) Mm?
2: Uh, I have two at this point you made two statements today one of them was that contemplation leads to insight but not for some you said
0: not for some people Mm -hmm. Mm.
2: and uh, the other statement you said today and Repeated just now is that you one cannot meditate when unhappy or without joy. Could you please explain both of
0: these things? Well, contemplation should lead to insight, but you know that uh, it's the same as saying meditation should lead to nibbana. I mean, not everybody gets insight. It is, if you contemplate a universal truth, and such as impermanence, for instance, and then the mind just balks at it, doesn't want to know about it, refuses to go deeper to the point where it really means something, the mind may say, yes, yes, I know, it's all impermanent, certainly, and then give up at that point. There's no insight in that. Insight arises when the impermanence is seen as so um, penetrating into ourselves that there's nothing actually solid to be found. Then it's insight. But when we say, well, yes, everything's impermanent, there's no insight there. It's just a statement. So it's very possible that one does contemplate and still doesn't get any insight.
2: What is the due
0: to, and what can be done about that kind of situation? Well, in one respect, it's due to fear. See, fear is a human condition, and fear is always the fear of annihilation of this supposed person that is here, either through death or through not enough ego support and particularly when we come to the point of seeing this impermanence in us so strongly, then there is a great fear, which could be even panic, that uh, we are going to be shown something which we don't want to know, that this identity, this personality, is a myth. So fear is the first and foremost um, hindrance to go deeper. This is all um, all resolved when the meditation becomes more uh, becomes one of absorption. When the meditation gets better, all these fears disappear because of the fact that the meditation itself is then a substitute. But in the beginning, the fear is there. So this is probably the strongest obstacle, the fear. And what to do about it? Keep at it. (laughs) That was one question. (laughs) Or was there something else about that?
2: No, for the moment, I think that... uh,
0: Mm -hmm. Then there was a second question. Second one.
2: uh, Why do you say that one cannot meditate when
0: unhappy or without joy? Mm-hmm. Well, one can try to meditate, certainly. But uh, the result is not going to be satisfactory. The mind which is unhappy and uh, bothered by something will constantly return to that bother. It's just as if you had an itch and you're constantly returning to, to scratch that same itch. The mind has to be at ease, at peace in order to become really calm. Meditation, as we have so far talked about it, the method is only um, the attempt at meditation. Another another two steps, and we'll get in this the arising, to the meditation as it really becomes meditation. And in order to have be calm and at ease, the mind has to be calm and at ease in order to become absorbed. There must be no itch in it. And this... So as
2: long as there is some kind of discursiveness, uh, in other words, this problem or that problem keeps coming in and... and Evolving. As long as that happens, we don't have true meditation. That's right. But
0: we should persist. Oh, definitely. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs>
1: it's probably um, asking Mr. Ravel's question in a different way, but um, you're mentioning that the spiritual path is something that will turn oneself inside out, so that all one's problems that one would rather not expose are exposed, and yet one must have um, calm and peace. (laughs) So how
0: does that contradiction resolve itself because it doesn't seem to Anyone who's practice knows that a lot of things come up which which don't induce one to be calm. <laughs> yes, that it's quite true what you're saying. Um, you see, that what comes up in the practice in oneself, if we resist it, if we are ashamed of it, if we blame it, if we would rather it didn't come up, all these things bring the mind into turbulence. All that is uh, detrimental to meditation. But if we look at it and say, aha, this has come up, this is what has happened, accept it, (coughs) drop it, substitute with something else, and keep going, there's no turbulence it's a matter of accepting things the way they are and not trying to be to make them different it is also a matter of keeping impermanence in mind and also a matter of keeping anatta non-self in mind even though one hasn't experienced it if we have faith in the Buddha's teaching, then we know that that's what he said. Everything is coreless. So if we keep that in mind, what's there to worry about if we turn ourselves inside out and some of the rubbish shows? It doesn't matter. Who's showing? And who's blaring? So it's a matter of keeping the whole of the teaching in mind and specifically that which brings the liberation. And then we can be grateful for the fact that these things have come up, because if we deal with them in a sensible manner, we may be able to drop them and let go of them, and not have to redo the whole thing. Now, not every time, naturally. Naturally, there will be times where we can't just drop. Like that would be nice if we could, but we can't. So it will re- reoccur. But if we have this ex- acceptance and understanding, then it's no tragedy. On the contrary, it's just one of the lessons on the way. <laughs> well, you've got a nice notebook. Uh, that always helps. I used to have also lots of notebooks. I think it's very good to have notes.
1: <laughs> huh? A goat. Oh.
0: Anything else?
1: I sometimes it's, it's all very good what you said, that it's very true in this uh, calm, quiet surroundings in Cape Breton Island which is, uh, and, but if you're in Manhattan you know, or in Toronto, they'll be big and everyday life has to be done, somebody's working, things, there is so much pressure all around of the modern kind of life and uh, I know you will say that this is teaching that we come to your rescue there. Hmm? Mm. But uh, the pressure all around is
0: far greater. Yes, that's quite true, of course. But we have to eventually find our own priorities. If we find that it is more important to follow the spiritual path and uh, make that our life, then we will find our way out of Manhattan and maybe to a pleasant Bay.
1: Yeah, it's already at my age for the young person who <laughs> have to compete with life and this, that. It's hard for them. I some of, of them even man, do, do it. People, my daughter, my son, oh, hmm.
0: Even some of the young people do it because they have seen something different. But if they are being caught in the uh, uh, manifoldness and the temptations of the ordinary life. And if they're caught in it, they can't see it. So they will maybe see it later, at a later age. Hmm? Anything else? Yes.
1: Uh, it's probably going to be a very vague question. But I really seem to be confused. Whatever comes up isn't workable. that are
0: you? No <laughs> I don't think so <laughs> uh, I think shall I rephrase your question or are you going to do it? Well
1: <laughs> if, if I could continue just a moment. yes go right ahead uh, I studied on my own uh, chugging Trump for Rinpoche and it just some of this seems to be seems to me to be contradicting some of that it just I always got the impression that whatever did come up is really valuable and just a distorted boy <laughs> just distortion that we can really take this whatever comes up and really get into it and work with it and uh um, it seems to me you're not saying that. It just seems to be we have to work with it, but not quite as much, and just sort of get rid of it and go for this ideal. Am I making any sense?
0: Um, when you say whatever comes up, you're talking about the thoughts or Everything. what, or well, what else Everything, comes strong up?
1: Strong emotions, overbearing
0: emotions. Oh, emotions and thought. Yeah. Um, in the meditation, during the meditation, is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, labeling. The, uh, the way to deal with that is a very important way is to label, drop, back to the breath. To get into it and then explore it, that would stop any meditative procedure that could possibly well it couldn't even be called contemplation because these are personal emotions and not universal emotions but when it can be changed into a universal aspect it could be used for contemplation so what you're looking at is different stages of development in meditation meditation develops slowly for most people very slowly and in the beginning what we do is we try to keep the meditation subject in mind in this case the breath and label whatever arises in order to get insight into ourselves from that what arises give it a name identify it so we know what it is and then drop it get back to the breath it dissolves by itself by having been labeled because when it's labeled you're an objective observer you're not subjective. You're an observer standing there watching it. You're not getting into it and therefore it dissolves by itself. These are very important lessons. At this time, that's the beginning of meditative practice. As one goes a little further, the meditation becomes a little more one-pointed. And as it becomes a little more one-pointed, there are the possibilities of becoming absorbed. Now, I haven't even got to that yet. I've only just mentioned them casually here and there, but I will explain them in detail because they are the um, means. They are not the, the goal of meditation, but they're the means, and the means for gaining insight. You see, the mind which has problems is concerned with problems, but it's not concerned with insight into absolute reality. The goal of meditation is insight into absolute reality. So for that, we have to prepare the mind to become so calm and so one-pointed and so strong that it can do that. Now in the beginning, of course, it can't do that. But you have to realize that some people might have been meditating for the last ten or fifteen or twenty years, and maybe doing not having all this stuff come up all the time. In the beginning, it does. Yes.
1: I think uh, the absorption might have me off. I really relate to that, that well. The wood. Well,
0: it's the state. a the, <laughs> state. the state. Yes.
1: Yeah,
0: I well, not having experienced it. Not having tasted the mango, it's very difficult to talk about the mango, isn't it? Because one doesn't know what it's like. But that such things exist is important to know. And they are part of the transcendental dependent arising. And transcendental dependent arising is a a way the Buddha taught from here to there. And when he talks about meditation, he does give instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta, he gives many instructions, but when he talks about meditation as such, he always talks about the absorptions. And the word doesn't have to throw you off. I can call them jhanas. Does that sound better? <laughs> the meditative absorption is just an English translation of the Pali word jhana, and uh, the uh, it's a much shorter and much more to the point. Anything else? And please put the attention on the breath for just a moment. Now think of yourself as your own best friend, and extend to yourself the care and concern that you would to a best friend, the love and attention, and embrace yourself as your own best friend. Now think of the person sitting nearest you in this hall and be that person's best friend extending your love and compassion your care and concern to him or her. Now think of yourself as the best friend of everyone who's here, and extend your love and compassion, friendship, care and concern to everyone here. Fill everyone with it, and embrace everyone with your friendship. And now think of yourself as the best friend of your parents. Fill them with your love and concern and embrace them with your friendship. Letting them know how much you care. Now think of those people who are nearest and dearest to you and be their best friend. Filling them with your care, your concern, your love, embracing them with your friendship. now think of all your good friends let them feel that you're their best friend fill them with love embrace them in friendship Think of anyone whom you find difficult, hard to get along with, hard to love. Become that person's best friend. So remove all obstacles in your own heart. Embrace him or her with love and compassion. Open your heart as wide as you can and embrace as a best friend as many people as possible, near and far. (coughs) Letting that feeling of care and concern, of love and compassion reach out and go into the distance to as many people as you can think of embracing them all in friendship put your attention back on yourself. Feel the happiness that comes from being your own best friend. The ease, the harmony that you can feel comes from accepting yourself, caring for yourself, enjoying your own company just like a best friend would. May our beings be friends with each other.